From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Francisco Goldman, and I'm going to be reading from Say Her Name, which is my um, novelized memoir inspired by the death of my wife, Aura Estrada, at the age of 30, when she, in the summer of 2007, from an injury and a body surfing accident. Uh, the book is about her, her life story, really, and about our life together, and the aftermath of that that, that tragedy. Um, so this little section I'm going to read here is actually about the narrator myself recalling some of the early days when we were first falling in love. Crevice, cenote, on the dirt road just past our hotel in Tulum, before you entered the Maya Biosphere Reserve, there was a small cenote by the side of the road, a seemingly bottomless crevice filled with the crystalline water of a subterranean river. We pulled our rental car over, we were in bathing suits, and got out to swim alongside the local kids who climbed up into the scraggly trees on the banks to dive into the water. I did that too, provoking shy grins and laughter, launching hairy belly hanging over bathing suit and winter pale barrel torso into the air, making a big splash as I went under, driving my arms and kicking as hard as I could to see how deep I could go into the chilly purplish depths until, overcome by fear of accidentally swimming into a cave and not being able to escape, I turned and kicked frantically upward. The Yucatan Peninsula, we learned from my travel book, is one immense slab of brittle limestone flattened millions of years ago by a giant meteor, the impact filling it with deep fissures and cracks through which all rainwater seeps, feeding the underground rivers running beneath the peninsula's arid surface. Whenever there's a collapse of rock above a watery void or the shifting of tectonic plates opens a crevice in the limestone strata, a cenote is formed. Portal to the underworld is how Aura and I heard a guide at a Mayan ruin site explain a cenote to his package tour gaggle. That one smooth pea-green surface hiding the sinkhole's murky depths and the skeletons of human sacrifice victims tossed in after their hearts were cut out. Hell Ha was the name Aura gave to the Mayan theme park Shell Ha, a mob tourist trap that we went to because it promised cenotes and lagoons to snorkel in. Though underwater there were many more pairs of human legs dangling and kicking from inner tubes floating by overhead than there were fish to see below and lots of drifting, semi-translucent bits of crud. There was also that little lagoon or lake or pond that we found one afternoon in the Maya Biosphere Reserve. We'd driven far into it on a rough dirt road that was filled with muddy ruts and swampy craters, unbroken scrub jungle on both sides, when off to the right we saw a small parking area and an observation tower painted bright yellow, rising above the low trees like a lost lifeguard's chair. We parked, got out, and followed a path until we reached the tower, then climbed the zigzagging stairs to the platform and top. It was a surprise to see the blue Caribbean no more than 200 yards away at the far edge of jungle canopy across the road. Also, it was later than we'd realized, the sun falling in the sky, orange and pulsing. When we climbed down, instead of heading right back to Tulum, we followed the trail further in, to that hidden lagoon where we sat in a low wooden dock, no one else around. Soon we were watching the iridescent pastels of the sunset spreading over the water, and blazing in the sky above the strip of jungle between us and the ocean, the whole place throbbing with bird calls, as if every glowing tree and plant hit a boisterous bird or two, and we both felt stunned into separate peaceful meditations on the crazy sublimity of what we were witnessing, 
each of us filling with a sense of mystical wonder and loneliness that merged into one mystical wonder and loneliness together. It was as if we'd just been married in a secret ceremony conducted by the birds. Sometimes I think that if sonotes really are portholes to the underworld and I can go through one and be reunited with Aura, it's on the shores of that jungle lagoon that I'll come out and find her waiting. Well, hell ha, mi amor. No happy memory that isn't infected. A virus strain that has jumped from death to life, moving voraciously backward through all memories, obliging me to wish none of it. My own past had ever happened. But I'm like a sentry who keeps nodding off at the quarantine gate, letting the inmates stream past. Still, it's lonely to be left with only my versions. Aura can't say, but it really wasn't like that, mi amor. It was more like this. Someday it was going to be her holding my bony hand, leading me through our memories of falling in love. That sweet elation of waking up and finding her beside me in bed. The apartment filling up with music I'd never heard before, tuneful, clever girl music, Bell and Sebastian, on the happiest mornings of my life so far. Four years later, I still hadn't gotten over it, the daily surprise of happiness. She brought her own CDs those first nights she stayed over. Dear Catastrophe Waitress, wrapped up in books, Judy and the Dream of Horses, and if you ever find yourself caught in love, say a prayer to the man above. Thank him for every day you pass. You should thank him for saving your sorry ass. Was this really happening in my life? I can't listen to those songs anymore without fogging up. Soda Stereo, Charlie Garcia, Smith's, Pixies, Ooey Ooh, her beloved Beatles and Dylan. And what did I turn out on to? Iggy Pop and the Stooges, I guess. Te quiero aún más hoy que ayer. I love you even more today than I did yesterday. Every morning, those were the first words I'd say to her, like the superstition of rabbit, rabbit, rabbit being the first words you speak out loud on New Year's morning. It would be months before the morning came when I'd forget to say it. Aura pretended for about two minutes to be indignant. What, you're falling out of love with me already? The next morning I remembered, but in less than a year repeating those words did finally begin to feel too automatic. Still, it wasn't something to toss away as I've all used up. There would still be mornings when I especially wanted her to hear it or just wanted to say it again. One morning, back during that first or second week, she led me from bed to stereo, put in her Bjork CD, and advanced it to It's Oh So Quiet, the song about falling in love, where Bjork's lullaby, shh, shh, turned to euphoric shrieks of, wow, wow, this is it. I could inspire that. Bjork-like was the slant and shape of Aura's eyes, the fall of her hair, her air of a mischievous sprite. Another night, sitting on my lap, she read out a poem from the Carol Ann Duffy book she'd brought with her. At childhood's end, the houses petered out till you came at last to the edge of the woods. It was in a clearing in those woods that the poem's speaker, Little Red Cap, first clapped eyes on the wolf. With wolfly drawl, the old wolf, wine-stained snout, was reciting his poems, book held in hairy paw. Aura lowered her voice into those internal rhymes, the crimped black points of her tights over her toes rising on the beats like cat's ears lifting towards sound. What big eyes, what teeth, ha, 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 and bought me a drink, my first. Why does little Redcap want to go with the old wolf? Aura pressed her warm forehead against mine. Here's why, poetry. She repeated it, poetry. Little Redcap wants to be a poet, too. What little girl doesn't dearly love a wolf? 
evidently chanted and drawn out like the chorus of a favorite rock anthem. Except the poem didn't end happily, not for the wolf anyway. After ten years of listening to him perform the same old songs, without finding a voice of her own, little Red Cap cuts the wolf open, scrotum to throat with an axe, finds her grandmother's bones inside. Oh no, I said, please, my love, don't ever do that to me. I won't stifle your voice. I'm not that kind of old wolf. Our first Sunday in New York together, we went to Katz's Deli so that Auda could have her first pastrami sandwich. The plan was to go from there to the Metropolitan Museum, then maybe walk in the park, drinks in some romantic hotel bar, go to a movie, and some place for a late dinner. The sandwiches at Katz's being so enormous, I suggested we split one and order two matzo ball soups, because she'd never had that either. But she so liked the sample tidbits of pastrami the counterman gave her, and was so excited by the look of the sandwiches, the piled juicy meat spilling out the sides, that she wanted one just for herself. She devoured it. Then, on the sidewalk outside Katz's, she said that her stomach hurt. She had a bewildered look in her eyes. Her face was drawn, and when I pressed my lips and nose to her cheek, it was clammy and smelled slightly of mustard and meat fat. Oh, she moaned, bent over, arms clasped over her abdomen. I have to go home. You mean to my place, I asked? She nodded. I waved down a taxi, and we went back to my apartment in Brooklyn, where she spent the rest of the afternoon in bed, while I made her drink Alka-Seltzer, dashed out to the supermarket for chamomile tea, read, watched some football with the sound off while she napped, tickled the inside of her forearm like I already knew she always wanted me to, feather lightly raking my fingertips up and down over her skin. By night she felt better, and for dinner I ordered her chicken and rice soup from the Chinese takeout place around the corner, seeing Chow My Fun for me, and we watched the DVD. I'd pretty much forgotten that it was possible to spend the Sunday the way Outer and I spent that one. Now, whenever I pass Katz's Deli, I stop to stare in a mute muddle at that sidewalk, the long blackish snake of the curb, the empty air above. Sometimes I go and stand where it happened and whisper, You mean to my place? Descending into memory like Orpheus to bring Auda out alive for a moment. That's the desperate purpose of all these futile little rites and reenactments. It's so cold in Alaska. You were going to become a rock star. You didn't realize it yet, but you were going to drop out of Columbia and probably end up dumping me too for the grungy glamour of life on the road and at least modest stardom. Raul, a kid you knew from Mexico City who was at Columbia too, studying architecture, had formed a band that was playing at clubs downtown and around the Northeast. The band had decided that what they needed to get them to the next level was a female vocalist, and so they were holding auditions. Raoul invited you to try out. For days you shut the French doors to our bedroom and sat on the floor, playing that song on your laptop and singing along to it. Stephanie says, It's so cold in Alaska. I knew they'd choose you. You didn't have a great voice, but you didn't need one. You would just need to be able to carry a tune and softly speak, sing the lyrics, well, like Nico. The band, I was sure, must above all be seeking a certain look, and you looked like a Mexican Bjork. I had to accept it. I'd vowed to avoid the caricature of the controlling older lover. The last thing you were looking for was a Tommy Matola. Anyway, you didn't think it would be the end of us if you became a rock musician. It would only mean the occasional weekend away and rehearsal time. I knew all the things it could and probably would mean, but kept my mouth shut. That was during our first winter together. 
I went with you to the Lower East Side the day of your audition, a gloomy February Saturday afternoon. While you went off to the recording studio the band had rented, I waited in a coffee shop next to the Tenement Museum. I sat at the window sipping coffee, telling myself to feel happy for you, Stephanie says, playing over and over inside me like the saddest goodbye song ever. I felt a kind of grief, not the heavy, eviscerating thing itself, but its predatory shadow, like a shark's shadow, passed through me that day. Everything was about to change. I had to accept it. Finally, you came into the coffee shop with that tight, goofy smile, sat on a stool next to me, took a sip of my coffee, the startling vermilion lipstick smudge you left on the cup's whitish rim. And then after you'd gulped down a big chunk of my second order of carrot cake, your gap-toothed smile widened into one of broad embarrassment, and you merrily announced, Takaya way? Raoul says I have the worst voice ever, that I don't have the least idea of how to sing. But they were nice about it. Oh, and the girl who went before me was so good, they have to choose her. They made videos of all the singers who tried out. Frank, we have to get that video back and destroy it. I told you how brave you'd been to try and how proud I was of you and that I loved the way you sang, Stephanie says, and that I would give anything to see that video. You always felt destined for stardom of one kind or another, but the fear that maybe that wasn't true wouldn't leave you alone, that you were no more than the classes you'd taken, the schools you attended, the books you'd read, the languages you spoke, your scholarships, your master's thesis in Borges and the English writers, and so on, but nobody unique with a talent only your own. You were desperate for something that was yours alone. I was yours alone, but that isn't what you meant. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock, and you also might want to check out the prize we founded in Auda's memory, Auda Estrada Prize, Org. It's a prize for Spanish-language female writers, 35 or under, resident in North America. Thank you. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.